is Sam, in case there's anyone I haven't met before. I uh, forgot to say that at the start. But first, a huge shout out to all the dads in the congregation. Like it's, it's Father's Day today. And so happy Father's Day if you're a dad. Uh, it's great that we can take some time and we get this day to acknowledge how important fathers are to us. Uh, I didn't set out to write a Father's Day sermon. Uh, and this isn't going to be one. Uh, But as I was preparing for this sermon and as I was reading over the passage with Father's Day coming up, I kept thinking of my grandfather, who at the end of last year passed away. His faith was firmly in the Lord Jesus. And so I know that he's in heaven now and I can take great comfort from that. But that's not necessarily why I was thinking of him as a way to start thinking through our passage together tonight. Uh, But our passage today clearly has something to say about church leaders or leadership positions, of which my grandfather was not. He was a quiet, humble man, the sort of person who would much prefer to sit silently than ever speak a word. Uh, And he'd probably be really feeling quite awkward if he knew that I was using him as a sermon illustration tonight. He was the sort of person who just faithfully provided for his family and my grandma Uh, and displayed his love for God through his love of singing in the church congregation uh, and his love for us, his family. And at his funeral, I was struck, though, by how little was said about the things that he did. I mean, there was the usual life story and explanations of where he grew up and all that sort of stuff. But what people kept coming back to was not what he had done, but rather who he was that he was humble, that he was caring, loving, and faithful. And I remember the minister who preached a sermon at the funeral saying something to the effect of, isn't that the Christian life that God calls us all to? That in this life, who we are is so much more important to God than what we can do. And it seems as we read the Bible and in tonight's passage, God cares far more for who we really are what we really think than he does for what we bring to the table. And so as we approach tonight's passage in which the Apostle Paul is outlining for his protege Timothy some broad strokes guidelines for appointing people to leadership roles in the church, what we see is not a list of things that they must be good at. But instead, we see who they should be. Our passage today, and it will be super helpful for you to have it open in front of you, is continuing on in 1 Timothy, and it's chapter 3, in case you missed it just before, no judgment, it's also on the screen behind me. It's part of Paul giving some guidelines to Timothy on how to behave in church. And one of the ways that Paul seems to think that they should go about organising themselves is by appointing leaders. Today's chapter has three clear sections, if you're the sort of person like me that likes to see the structure in Bible passages. We see verses 1 to 7, requirements for overseers, verses 8 to 13, requirements for deacons, and verses 14 to 16. We get Paul's reasoning behind imparting not just the wisdom in tonight's chapter, but also what we read last week in chapter 2. And as we approach these categories, I'm aware that the words I just said are not words that we regularly use. In some Bibles, the word overseer, you might see translated as bishop, but this is possibly a little unhelpful because if you're anything like me, you start to think of people in robes and pointy hats. 
Uh, and that's not really what the word is trying to get across. But instead, the word overseer means, in at least the generalized Greek, someone who supervises others and leads them. And so because of where we see it in tonight's passage, where Paul is talking about the church, we can presume it's someone who supervises others and leads them in the church. That it's someone leading the church or a gathering of believers. And the word for deacons is kind of similar. It has connotations of serving, but in an assistant capacity. And so because, again, of where we see it, in an assistant capacity to the role of overseer that is mentioned before. And as we look at the lists of requirements that Paul gives for these two groups of people, overseers and deacons, we see that they examine not their charisma, not their hairstyle, not their sense of humour, but rather the outworking of their character and their convictions. Now, I'm going to be using three words that start with C a lot tonight, character, convictions and competency. And the simple way to explain what I mean by that is that when I say character and conviction, I mean who a person really is. And then when I say competencies, I mean what they can do, what they're good at. So what we're going to do is we're going to quickly skim through all of verses 1 to 13, and we're going to look at what it says very briefly that the requirements should be for an overseer and for a deacon. And you can follow along in your Bibles with me if you have one. An overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, to manage their family and household well, to have a good reputation with outsiders. And then we get some warnings about some particular dangers to look out for. They shouldn't be given to drunkenness. They shouldn't be violent, but instead they should be gentle. They shouldn't be quarrelsome or a lover of money or a recent convert. And for deacons, similarly, they're in the same way as overseers, they're meant to be above reproach, worthy of respect, sincere, not to be indulging in lots of wine or pursuing dishonest gain, but instead they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. A quick aside, interestingly here it says clear conscience, not good conscience like we've seen before, which means that their conscience needs not only to be functioning, but also to not be telling them that they're doing something wrong. Faithful to their wife, manage their children or household well. Such a morally daunting list. Like there's a lot in there. And we don't really have the time for me to step through each of those in detail. Uh, and that's hopefully not going to be the takeaway this morning. That we look at our church leaders and we check them off against a biblical list and see if they measure up. Because obviously no one's perfect. But there does seem to be an importance here on maintaining a high standard for those in leadership positions in the church. But in that, these standards don't seem to be a tick box of achievements or a set of necessary skills, but rather an orientation of the heart towards God. Now, those paying really close attention will notice that I did leave one thing out. Did anyone pick up what it was that wasn't at one of the other two services? No, that's okay. I understand it's a little bit late at night. Able to teach was mentioned under the category of overseer. There is one skill, one seeming competence for overseers, 
Because it seems that there is something about the overseer position of leadership, of stewardship of the church that requires that one skill, one competency, the ability to teach. And as we hear this list and we see the way that it weights these two different things, character and conviction and competency, who someone really is and what they're good at, I wonder if it matches up with what we think makes a good leader. And I also wonder, what does it reveal to us about what God cares about in all leaders and then, by extension, in all people? As I was preparing for this, I was reminded of when the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Samuel, it's easy to find, was tasked by God to go and anoint a new king that God would show him. The old king Saul had been doing the wrong thing. He turned away from God, and so they needed someone new. And God sends Samuel to the home of Jesse, who has eight sons. All of the sons get paraded in front of Samuel, starting with the eldest. And when the eldest son comes out, we read in 1 Samuel 16, 6-7, that when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He saw his broad shoulders. He saw how tall he was, how capable he seemed, And he thought, there's God's king. But then we learn something about God here. Look with me on the screen, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the same goes for every son that Jesse parades in front of Samuel. No, this is not the right one. Until they call in the youngest boy from outside who's looking after the sheep, David, who's the smallest, the weakest, the youngest. Not the one that Samuel would have chosen. But instead we read that David had a heart after God's own. And so we see that this prioritization of God, of who someone is over what they're good at, their character and conviction over their competencies, is not something new that Paul is telling us about in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's not something new. Because God has always cared far more about the character of a person and their convictions than he does for their competencies. And this ultimately, I think, makes a lot of sense when it comes to choosing leaders or considering those to step into ministry. Especially when we, as Paul seems to encourage us to do in this passage, consider the dangers of someone who is deficient in their character or convictions, especially in the life of a church leader. We all can probably think about a charismatic, entertaining preacher who perhaps is great at the tasks of ministry but lacks a core component of the character described by Paul, or if we can't, the news can. Perhaps they aren't faithful to their wife. They love money too much to the point of distorting the word to obtain more. They slip into prideful self-assurance and righteousness, or they misuse their power and their position for personal gain. We see it all the time. And the effect on popular opinion of the church is horrifying when we get this wrong 
when the place that is meant to be a shining light to the world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus, the church, because of a deficit or lack of appropriate character and conviction in its leaders is instead a place of darkness. And that's a danger to watch out for. But what about the other way? If that's horrifying to contemplate, what's the alternative? If we appoint leaders based on their character and their convictions, their heart for Jesus and the way that that outworks in their life over and above just their competencies, what would that look like? Well, I would hope that it would provide for the church a model for their own lives. Not modelling perfection by any means, that's not possible, we shouldn't expect that, but rather modelling what it's like to look to the one who is perfect, Jesus, and to let his example be a guide for the whole church. And, well, the reality of church life is that deficiencies in competency can be made up for by working together as the body of Christ. Because leaders with the right character and convictions don't need to do everything themselves. And in fact, from Paul's description, it seems essential that they aren't expected to. And I think this brings up a common danger for us in church, is that we have this thought about the importance of character and conviction, and then we expect our minister to be competent in all areas. If what we should prioritise in our church leaders is their godliness, their character and their integrity, then we as a church need to hear the implicit responsibility to step up and help where we can. Like we should rejoice when our leaders admit they can't do everything. Because that should have been our assumption right from the very start. When Rick puts out the call for people to step up into different areas of service, when we say we need more people to mow the lawns, or we need some people to help with kids' church, or whatever it is, I wonder if our first thought is, wow, isn't it so great that Rick isn't doing everything? Or instead, do we think, isn't that what we pay him for? Isn't he just meant to do everything? But the priority that Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 3 of character and convictions as more important than competencies, I think holds true for more than just overseers and deacons. Because we already discussed that God cares far more about who you are, what's in your heart, whether your affections and your desires are turned to him, whether you love him, than he does for whether you're great at serving up morning tea, or praying for the congregation, or setting up chairs, or running music, or helping with a kid's ministry in the morning, or mowing lawns, or fixing the gutters. Don't get me wrong, those are good things. Please don't just suddenly stop doing them. That would cause chaos. But the danger here is that we prioritise competency, your ability to do those things over the right heart. And that danger is real. It can lead to bitterness, anger, frustration, self-righteousness, pride. And I think it's a trap that we can all fall into all too readily. We serve in some way because we're good at it, 
someone like tapped us on the shoulder and was like, oh, you can do that. Give, just give it a go. And we don't actually stop to think about whether we're doing it because we love God and want to serve his people. I know for me, I've found myself stumbling into this from time to time. At this service especially, you guys would be aware, I help out with music every now and then. And I have to catch myself from getting up and leading music just because I can. And instead remind myself from God's word that when we sing together as God's people, it's to teach and encourage one another. And to point one another towards God, it's not to make Sam look great. That God doesn't value the quality of the notes, but rather the hearts of the people that make them. So if you're serving in some way, I encourage you to take a step back, not necessarily from doing that thing without at least letting us know, but to examine your motivation behind it. Is it stemming from a heart for God? A heart to make him known to the world and serve his kingdom in thanks for the good news of Jesus? Or is it something else? Because if it's a danger for our leaders or those we might appoint, then it's a danger for us all. On the flip side of that, though, and we've done a lot of flipping, so I hope you've managed to stay on track with me. Have you possibly discounted yourself from serving in some way because you feel that you don't have the skills? Because if we follow a God that cares more for the hearts of those who follow him than the skills that they have, perhaps you need to have a go at more things. Perhaps you should consider whether devoting your life to that service is an option. There is a place for learning and training, of course. But have you ever considered how God could use you for the kingdom? Maybe you think you're too old. Maybe you think you're too young. Paul doesn't seem to think so. Perhaps you think you don't have the right studying ability or the right look. You don't wear a hoodie the right way. You don't have the right hairstyle, the right words, a half sleeve of tattoos or whatever you think it might be. But the reality we see from Paul here is that it's not about competence. It's about character. If you have a heart for God's kingdom and for making Jesus known, then don't let something as trivial as what you're good at get in the way. Jesus' 12 disciples were a weird jumble of previous professions and education levels. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, was a fisherman. He had a lot of upskilling to do. He didn't just take what he was good at, catching fish, and use it for Jesus. He learned some new skills. And he would go on to be one of the foundational members of the church. His name was changed by God to Peter, and it literally means rock. Because on him, the church was built. Now, I think a possible question, though, that we might get from all of this uh, is, why does the church matter so much? Like, why should we actually care about making sure it has good leaders? Like, why does it actually matter? Isn't this just like a social hangout where we chat a little bit, think a bit deep, and then we have a snack afterwards? Like, what's actually important about why we're here? And I think that question is valid, because Paul kind of answers it for us in verses 14 to 16. And so we're going to quickly touch on these, even though we've spent a bit of time on stuff already, because it's just too awesome not to. In these last few verses, we get from Paul what he thinks the church is. And we can see that it's more than just a spiritual support group. 
but rather it is central to the purposes of God in the world. Paul's written this letter thus far so that Timothy and his church, and by extension us, might know how to conduct ourselves in God's household, which is the church. This imagery of the church as a household is one we saw earlier in the chapter with the need for overseers to manage their households well. Why? Not because it's good, not because we want them to have poster-perfect families, but because that's what they're going to do in the church. Manage the family of God. The people, the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people are a household given the mission of making God known to the world. Like, have you guys ever stopped to think about the fact that if people want to find God today, the Bible and Paul here says not to look anywhere, but to an ordinary gathering of Christian believers in a local church. That's amazing. It's, I think, a powerful way to think about the church. Because in a functioning family, and I know this isn't the case for everyone, and that's sad, but in a functioning family, you are not valued by how much you contribute, but by the fact that you are part of the family. And in church, you are not valued by how much you can contribute to the mission, but rather by how much you are loved by our Heavenly Father. But even that isn't the only thing that Paul gives us in these last few verses. We see this gathered people of God as a family, but also as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Not just any truth, but the truth. The mystery of godliness, which no one could possibly understand if God had not made it known. Paul doesn't mean mystery in terms of something that we don't know, but rather something that was a mystery and has now been revealed, the story of Jesus Christ. And then he outlines it for us. Who appeared in flesh, was made man, proclaimed from on high to be the Son of God and promised Messiah, seen by angels and the nations and believed in the world, who died but rose again and is in glory in heaven, preparing a place for those who follow him. The church must be built on this truth, but also seek to commend this truth to the world. Not our own skills or abilities, but the person of Jesus. So I think we need to shift what we value in those around us. We need to shift it away from what people are good at. We need to value the character and convictions of our leaders and our brothers and sister, brothers and sisters in Christ over what they're good at. We need to make sure that we aren't serving ourselves when we're at church, when we mow the lawn or help with music or prepare some snacks or attend or run a Bible study. Because God cares far more about who you are, what's in your heart, whether your affections and your desires are turned to him, whether you love him, than he does for what you're good at. I'm going to pray now that God would transform our hearts, that he would shape our desires and affections to line up with his, that we would care about what he cares about. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, 
Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross so that even in our sinful, broken states, we might be counted as righteous through him. Please help us not to care about what people are good at, not to seek to get our own glory through our skills, Lord, but rather help us to have the character and conviction that seeks to love you above all other things. Please grow and deepen our love for you. Help us to value what you value. In Jesus' name we pray.